Hello everyone and welcome to this episode, the Disability One of the Women Talking About Learning podcast. I'm Andrew Jacobs. This episode is being released to coincide with International Day of Persons with Disability, which is later this week on 3rd of December. We feel that this is an essential topic to talk about and what better way to do this than to hear directly from women who are living and working with disability. So with this in mind, we have five fantastic guests who share their stories about this largely under-discussed topic. Our first guest is Joe Cook. Joe gets a hat-trick ball for this episode, having been with us a couple of times before. Through her company, Lightbulb Moment, Joe specialises in training teams of learning professionals about virtual classrooms and webinar design and delivery. Our next guest is Debbie Carter. Debbie has been writing about and covering the field of workplace learning development for over 20 years, most recently as the editor of TJ Magazine, formerly Training Journal. Debbie has cerebral palsy and is a permanent wheelchair user. She has a deeply personal view of the importance of belonging for those who face the difficulties of being different. We also have Helen Todd. Helen is the founder and director of Impact People Consulting. Helen has comprehensive experience across talent acquisition and development, employee engagement and performance management. This experience has been gained in a range of industries, from technology through to global financial institutions. Next up is Susan Strang. Susan started her career as a teacher in Northern Ireland in the late 80s and early 90s, teaching in both primary and secondary schools throughout Northern Ireland and also in Berkshire in the UK. After some years of travel, Susan currently works as a training officer, tutor and mentor for a charitable organisation in Belfast. Last, but definitely not least, is Cathy Doherty. Cathy has a rich background in guiding leaders through the intricacies of people, culture and HR. Now she collaborates with business owners caught in the challenge of breaking free from parental management habits, injecting fresh perspectives and fostering thriving workplace dynamics. We recorded this at the end of October 2023 and the episode is longer than usual because the conversation just flowed and flowed and flowed. Grab a drink and get comfortable. This is Women Talking About Learning. This is Joe. Debbie, Helen, Susan and Cathy talking about disability. Hi there, my name's Jo. I'm I'm a woman in learning, which is partly why I'm here. But this topic is about disability. Susan, why are you here on this podcast? That's a good question, Jo. Um, originally, I had a link from a, a colleague um, about the podcast um, Disability and Learning And to be honest, I didn't really have any expectations. I am a woman who has been in learning for many, many years. Um, I actually have disabilities myself. I teach uh, or tutor or facilitate, whichever one of those terms you want to use, because we use them all together. Um, Young adults, young SEN adults. And basically, I just thought, you know, what the heck, I will come on and talk or answer or give information about whatever I can. It's not very um, direct, but it's it's kind of meandering, Joe. But basically, uh, I just thought I would come on and see what I could contribute. I love it. And I think meandering is a good word to describe this podcast in the most positive of ways. (laughs) 
Uh, Debbie, let's come to you. I'm going to hand over official host duties after this. I'm not going to be the host. Uh, but Debbie, what brought you here? Well, um, I was interested in the topic um, because I've been working in learning and development for quite some time. So I, as a not delivering learning, but working editorially, so covering learning and development as a topic area for some time. And I'm also, uh, like Susan, I have a physical disability. And I I kind of wanted to share a little bit, maybe with other people, some of my experiences of my own learning uh, and how that's changed me as a person. Um and see whether that has resonance with other people about uh, needing to belong, um, needing to have people who support you because it's um, very tough. Uh, Certainly when I was a child, it was even tougher in the 60s and 70s um, in education where you didn't get much support. So for me, it's going to be, uh, mine's probably initially I was, it's just talking about it as a sort of personal experience of of the pluses of, and actually, the, the the I don't necessarily see my disability as a negative, as well. Um, it, it is a big negative at times, but it's also given me insights and experience that I think makes me quite a strong personality in person, a lot of the time. Not all the time. I wouldn't dream of saying that because uh, Joe, who knows me well, um, knows that, you know, I get my down times. But equally, I'm when I'm at my best, I think I can give a lot of people um, ideas, maybe a bit of inspiration um, in in what they do with um, their own difficulties or within their own practice, perhaps. But that's my that's my take on the subject. So I'd love I'd love to hear more about Helen. What what what's your what would you what made you interested? Um, I'd love to know more about you as, as an individual and why this is so important. Um, yeah, thanks so much, Debbie. Um, so um, I suppose I um, have been a disability advocate for several years. Um, however. Um, only in the last couple of months have I gone, I suppose, public with my own disabilities. Um, as a learning professional and an HR professional, um, I've been very much an advocate for the people I have supported in, a, in my working life, as well as my husband and my son. Um, but now I suppose it's time for me um, to advocate for myself. I have dyscalculia and migraines, and both affect my ability to learn. However, in my working life, um, I have used my dyscalculia under the radar um, to support people and it's given me an ability to look at holistic thinking and to support other people. Um, And I suppose for me, it's raising an awareness of dyscalculia and the amazing ability that dyscalculia gives people from a learning perspective um and I I I love my my dyscalculia um 
but it's really only now in the last couple of months that I've started to really talk about it. Um, from a learning perspective, um, I, I'm fully embracing it. Um, and um, I want to share that with other people. Um, and it's, it has really seen me well um, across, I suppose, the last 18 years um, in my career in the HR. Um, and I just want to really embrace it now um, and just really, suppose, share that with other people. Over to you, Kathy. What are you here for? Thanks, Helen. Um, well, I suppose for me, um, I personally don't have disabilities, but I have been like my many members of my family have. Um, so it's always been something that's on the radar and I've seen their struggles and in my HR and practices working with employers. You know, for example, my mom has had hearing aids all of her life. Um, she was profoundly deaf in one ear. Um, and I can, you know, it's obvious to see the isolation that can cause, um, which actually led me to hiring a deaf HR officer, um, which people were like, how is that going to work out? Um, but it worked. Um, and usually what you find in that situation was people were more scared about offending rather than anything else. Um, my sister has complex mental health conditions and physical health. So I've been surrounded um, and in friendships as well, surrounded by the visible and the invisible, the hidden disabilities. Um, and so I've always having seen their struggles um, with in terms of even from my sister the initial of, you know, understanding that she had dyslexia, and this was in the late 80s, and to be told by the head teacher, no, she was just stupid, um, and just the, the cruelty that can come with it, which thankfully with the increase of awareness um, where we are now, there's still a long way to go. Um, but I've learned, I mean, my sister has been the greatest teacher for me, um, in terms of, I know the pressures that, you know, when it's addressed as, you know, it can be seen as a superpower that the pressure that that piles on to people with, especially mental health style conditions. So for me, it's part and parcel. It's so important of what I do when I'm speaking to clients and helping them understand their employees, but also to become a bit more empathetic and patient. Um, when it comes to when it comes to their people and their family members and that it's okay to talk about it and I will I talk openly with my sister's permission about her various conditions because um, she is very much the more people can talk about it the more people are aware of it then it's all that myth dispelling um, and then also friends who have physical disabilities one story of wheeling one of them around the cobbled streets of Tallinn at about three o'clock in the morning while all rather inebriated and um, so they're all the, the there's all the various sides sides of it but I've never been apart from disabilities they've always been a part of my life so I see it as nearly a, a responsibility a duty to help others see that it's nothing to be scared of and to, to talk about it so that's why that's why I'm here. I love that uh, the Tallinn story um, reminded me of um, many many years ago as a student at Goldsmith in London um, uh, with um, a friend pushing uh, another person who was in a wheelchair at that time. I was um, I was able to stagger about in those days on my own two feet, but us rolling around in the early hours of the morning and very drunk and. Um, feeling absolutely on top of the world because we were out with all the other students doing exactly the same as them and that those opportunities 
um, at that time were completely new to me because up until going to university, I'd been being protected by my parents at home and hadn't had the opportunities to go out and behave like a, a youngster. So that really resonated with me, Cathy, and that those experiences, I think you, we forget, are often missing from a lot of disabled people's lives, those those connections with friends that as able-bodied people we probably take more for granted because it's it's easy but I think when you have a disability of some sort it can be anything it it will it restricts your ability to have enjoyment on the same level as others whether it's somebody who suffers from terrible IBS and can't go out because you know they can't eat certain things or they need to be near a loo or whatever down to people not going out because you probably won't be able to get into the pubs or the bars because there's a step so you know there's all those sorts of things but I thought that um I think we forget that that all those barriers which stop people from being their real selves as disabled people and having the experiences that everybody else has I think that's a really important point. And um, so I'm here um, and interested because I have what some would call a disability. I think legally, technically it might not be, but I have something called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome or EDS. Um, and there's all sorts of different types. I've got hyperflexibility type. And uh, for me, it causes pain, fatigue, brain fog. It's a connective tissue disorder. So I have IBS um, and various other things I won't bore you with, which uh, affects pretty much every minute of every day of my life to varying degrees. And definitely that isolation point is really interesting because whilst I'm able-bodied most of the time and certainly up to the last maybe few years, I've been really quite able-bodied. I used to scuba diving and rock climbing and all sorts of different things which is awesome but about 10 years ago it, it really kind of exploded and, and has got much worse but what I have uh, so on the isolation point you know I went to a party last week and I kind of didn't want to go in the first place kind of had to find a car park that was close by even down to what I wore because I need to wear comfortable shoes makes a difference it's like what comfortable shoes go with that dress and things like that um, and then I left at nine o'clock because I was tired and I had a headache and my muscles were hurting by then. And, you know, that's not me. I, I was, you know, I'm the last of the party. You know? <laughs> that That's me. That's the joke everyone knows is 3 a.m. saying, please go home. Um, and I think what's really important is finding your tribe. So in my local area, there's a, a Facebook group for people with chronic pain of all different types and, and disabilities. And it's just nice to have friends that get it, that you can just send a message to and go, I'm having a bad day. And they don't say, oh, have you tried yoga? Um, and, and like that, so. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I think, yeah, I'm the same with my migraines. Mm -hmm. I have to pace myself. Um, I have to eat throughout the day. Um, I have to make sure I sleep at night. However, I'm up with my son with a type 1 diabetes. I'm checking his glucose level. So I haven't actually had a proper night's sleep since 2017, since caring for my husband. Um, 
because we used to share responsibilities. So I don't get proper sleep. Um, so I have to make sure I pace myself during the day. Um, I have exercise induced migraines. So I have to make sure I balance my exercise with, I have to exercise, but I also have to make sure I don't exercise too much. So, and it's making sure that I don't, you know, park too far away from somewhere just in case I can't make it back to the car because I get pain. I get the severe headaches. I get, but it's not just a headache. It is the full body experience, you know, and that is the thing. So if I'm out on a Monday, I know that I might not necessarily go out on a Tuesday. I have to wait until a Wednesday. If I'm out on a morning, I can't do something in the evening. It's that, it is that restrictive nature of, you know, having to constantly pace yourself. And I don't like the fact I have to live my life according to my migraines, but I have to, if I want to actually have any sort of life and be able to leave the house and be the Helen that I know I am. Um, so yeah, and that's the thing. If I want to go to an event and I want to learn something at that event, I have to make sure that I go to bed really early. I have to have something to eat before I go to bed. I have to drink gallon loads of water so that I am ready for the next day and I can actually be present that next day. Um, so yeah, it's always about planning ahead and making sure that you don't get any curveballs. Yeah, I was going to. I was going to ask. Um, do you all think that the move to a more hybrid working environment, um, so there's not the expectation that you know you will be physically on site with people all the time? Do you think that has actually helped in terms of being able to deliver, or has it added to a sense of isolation? I, that's a really interesting point, Kathy. Actually, because I, um, as I said, I have been training, tutor, and teaching, whatever whatever term you want to put on it, um, for a long time. But the last year and a half, I have been working on a government program, particularly for young adults with learning difficulties. And um, that means being there present every day. Um, at, it's very demanding. And interesting to the way, Debbie, you've talked about physical disabilities and Kathy, you know, unseen uh, disabilities. I have fibromyalgia which is very similar symptoms to what you have, Joe. It's it's not a, a severe fibromyalgia. I know people who are much more severe, but I have found over the course of this year that hybrid working would have really benefited me. But because of the nature of the work, I couldn't actually do that. Um, so, and, and I think there there's, it is a good thing, I think, because you can manage you're you know if you have migraines or you know if you're having a bad day Debbie and you, you talked about a bad day earlier on I have bad days but I still to this day find myself pushing through that and you know everything's fine it's great when it's not and, and you have to do that so it would be good to have that option of a you know being able to work from home and to that end, I've actually changed back to my previous role or about to because I can't do every single day on my feet in a very high demanding role. So I think I think it's really interesting to on, on other points, Kathy, that, that you'd brought up about being around disability. Um, I think a lot of people have been um, around disability without even knowing it. I mean, growing up. You know, for definite, my grandmother, my mother had mental health problems. I've had mental health problems. 
Um, my son is dyslexic. My nephew is Asperger's. Um, I think there's a much wider conversation now about the variety, the depth of disabilities, seen and unseen and combined. Uh, because um, of all the young people that I work with at the minute, there are there there's just a myriad of uh, complexities. No, I, I think I think the problem with a lot of education and a lot of traditional stuff is it's set for conformity for a very generalized population and group of people. It Absolutely. doesn't reflect diversity on any scale, you know, mm. on any protected characteristics, other characteristics. So I it's agree. very much a that that difficulty that I think we're going to vary we're kind of in a transitional period where you've got the recognition without the resources and without the services and and then that makes it even thinking from the employer perspective you then have people coming into the workplace um, who have who haven't had support in the past have had that friction and then the employers kind of go ah, what do I do how do I cope yep. with this um, yeah and it's trying to demystify but also them recognizing within their own family group within their own contacts that you know they're not they haven't been isolated from this it's just maybe they haven't been as aware of it talking about working in isolation I mean I've worked um, nearly 15 years I've been working remotely Um, and it's interesting actually reflecting on people's perception of you I have spoken to, I spoke to so many experts, well-known figures in our industry um, as the editor of training journal, TJ. And I I recall going to an exhibition um, many years ago and going up to a guy, unfortunately, no longer with us, called Eric Parslow, who was uh, very well-known in the field of coaching. And I'd been getting commissioning stuff from him for some time. And I I, um, I went up to him and said, hello, Eric, it's Debbie Carter. And he looked absolutely shocked. And he said to me, Debbie, what has happened to you? Because I was in a wheelchair. I said, well, actually, nothing's happened to me, um, Eric. I, um, this is, I'm always in a wheelchair. I have cerebral palsy. And so um, I have to use a chair to get a pap. But, you know, a lot of the time, um, you know, it becomes an identifier for you. And so for me uh, uh, in the field, sometimes it's useful. I can't say it's useful, but you become quite identifiable because, you know, at the exhibitions and shows I go to, most people will realise that that woman roaming around, that middle-aged, well, not middle-aged, old woman rolling around in a wheelchair is um, it's actually Debbie Carter from Training Girls. So sometimes it, you know, can give you profile. Um, but that's an aside. But um, talking about education and going back to learning, um, I think a word that um, I don't use very much as an editor or I don't like very much is the word unique because there are very, very, very few things that really are unique, except, I think, things like people and disability so people's people's personalities and their disabilities because I think no I have never met as you say Kathy somebody or Susan I think it maybe was um that has the same exact same disability 
the variety of conditions, as you say, is so enormous. And that's why we say that, you know, this one shoe, this this one solution doesn't fit everybody. And why, um, when the government decided to introduce the personal independence payments and go through that, that assessment process of checking everybody's disabilities, I felt was such a waste of resources um of resources that could have been used so much more beneficially for disabled people than just checking out whether they were disabled and how disabled and debbie for for people who because i haven't gone through pip i know people who have and you say it's horrific but for people listening to this who don't know much about pip and why it's so horrific and why it's a waste of resources why why do you think that i don't i'm not saying it's horrific I mean, it, what it is, it's it, the, the, the actual, it's called personal independence payments, which um, replaced, uh, which was brought in by the Conservatives to replace the, um, the old disability living allowances and another, a number of the allowances paid to disabled people as part of um, them wanting to check that they weren't paying people for disabilities they didn't have or that for help that they didn't need, basically. So everybody who benefited from those those benefits went through a reassessment process. Um, Some people, unfortunately, lost their benefits and uh, there was a huge outcry. Um, I didn't. Um, In fact, I ended up getting a little bit more help than I was currently getting because they decided... That I that I would be entitled to help with some other things that I hadn't claimed for before, so it's just swings and roundabouts. But you know, uh, so that's that's a, a brief outline of the fact that there are some some benefits available. But again, um, how they are how they are assessed, I'm sure that maybe Susan's come across situations with the people that she's working with who probably would be entitled to benefits but a lot of people don't actually want to even start the process of getting money to help you and your loved ones your children with day-to-day costs because actually if you're disabled or you've got disability there are extra costs involved in just living. I was just going to jump in there that because of the nature of that it then impacts on people with hidden and visible disabilities asking for help in learning and development and in the workplace and explaining that this particular way of doing it doesn't work for me and some because yeah. of the nature I mean I can know from my sister's perspective of Pip it is horrifying she hates me it's real dread um, and real fear And that can then inhibit people's willingness to speak up and say, I need some assistance with the way I learn. I need some assistance with, because they feel they're going to undergo potentially the same type of scrutiny when actually they probably won't, um, but they don't know until they ask. And so they just don't. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, people who've got disabilities have had so many knockbacks in their lives anyhow. Um, you know, it, it damages their feeling of confidence in themselves in asking for anything. Um, 
I kind of think that that some people have this feeling that whatever they get, they're grateful for because maybe their own feeling of self-worth is quite low because they don't get the support that they need or from those around them to have that belief in themselves and their abilities. And I think for me, that came very late in my career. It wasn't really until I started working in learning and development, which was in the 1990s, that I had employers who were willing to support me with things that I might need to, to do the job and to be included in everything else that other employees did. But that, but before that, I was very much outside on my own and people didn't want, I didn't get, I never really felt I belonged until I was in an environment where the, and I think that was because it was a learning HRE type organisation I was working for. I may not, I may not have had that. I may never have had the, the achievements that I've had now if I hadn't had people who were well-informed and understanding of the needs for inclusion and equity. Um, and they gave me a sense of belonging, which I don't, th- I think is, for me, the most important thing you need. Yeah, I think with dyscalculia, because it's so unknown and it's so difficult to explain exactly what dyscalculia is. Um, you know, I very much felt like a square peg in a round hole for a lot of my career and trying to explain to an employer what dyscalculia is, is very difficult. So for a lot of, most of my career, I just went with it. You know, I didn't get support at school, through university. I just went with it, learned my own techniques for how to learn. Um, so, you know, I was very much a round peg or a square peg in a round hole for most of my career. Um, and I suppose I then, you know, didn't really find my tribe um I found it very difficult um and I then just put all my energies into helping other people then to feel you know that they were supported and went out of my way to help people feel supported um with reasonable adjustments and to learning about what we could do to help um so I think that was really important for me because I hadn't felt that you know people learned enough about what my situation was so I just kept very quiet about it um and just learned to deal with it myself um and I think that is and I feel quite embarrassed about it actually you know why didn't I shout out shout about myself why didn't I say hang on a second I need help um and this is what I've got um so I think it is you know you just kind of get on with it you know um and just channel it into other things um so yeah but I think it's 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 important, I think, though, that people do start to say, well, do you know what? Yeah, here's an invisible disability. Let's, tar- let's start talking about it. Let's figure out how we can help people to talk about it. Um, and I think that's, you know, it is really important with things like dyscalculia that's not really recognised um, and people don't really know about. Um, and it, you can't say it um, until, you know... <laughs> you start to notice it in things i i've been lucky because uh debbie you were saying there about um you know i've come across that a lot of the young people that come onto this program are already on a some kind of benefit for disability 
but I think they're, you know, and they're very supported in that environment. I think it's when they, they want to progress or go on to somewhere else, that's when it breaks down because they they don't have that same support. So that, that's that point. Another point, just to pick up on what you said there, I have felt that um, I, I'm in an organization who actually works specifically with people who have either a health condition or disability or combined. And that's a wide spectrum, as I've said before. But um, they have been extremely supportive of me because of the type of organization they are. Uh, but I still felt that I had to make that a bit more public, Helen. Like you said, you had to go public. Um, because while um, the people who use the organization it's recognised that they might have a, a disability or health condition. I didn't feel there was the same recognition in all spheres of our organisation. In some uh, departments there was, but but maybe not in others. But I think on the whole, they are very supportive of people. But I think you, even though they are specifically for that, you still have to say, I have mental health difficulties, I have fibromyalgia, you know, I have dyscalculia. You still have to point that out because, um, and I find that really difficult, um, having a conversation with HR and an occupational health person. I got quite upset about it because it was actually me saying out loud and recognising that actually I can't do the things that I used to do. And that was really painful. And, you know, we all have our up days and down days. I thankfully have more up than down, but it's it's explaining the complexities. And I think Debbie, you're right. The uniqueness of everybody's disabilities because it's not the same thing for one person. It's completely different for everybody. And I think that's where I'm always emphasising to people is that you really can't communicate too much. You know, it's the more you communicate, the more you talk, and the more that those are trusted and open conversations, I know certainly when, especially when it comes to, you know, my, my sister would always say about, you know, if, if I had a broken leg, you know, I'd be treated differently because people can see it. You know, they just think that there's, that I'm just grumpy, you know, because, you know, because they can't see what's going on with me. And I know certainly um, when it comes to talking to employees and just other people in general, that the more I kind of share about her experiences and the fact that I understand it, not from the personally experiencing it, but from experiencing from a loved one. And this has been since she was 16, we began to notice, but she didn't get her diagnosis until, you know, late 20s. And, you know, she's now also been diagnosed with um, complex PTSD and so we kind of make the joke you couldn't have simple PTSD you have to go for the complex version you know you have to always up it whatever there's going you'll raise the bar um and it, it's kind of that whole the emotional perspective and that in a sense brings out for me the sense to that I need to be an ally in the workplace but also in the environment generally um you know so for but also encouraging other people to see how you can do it and how you can and it's not scary and the more we understand you know especially with employers you know there's always when it talks about you know reasonable adjustments it's always that what is reasonable and that can get into very scary territory um but unless you talk about it 
and unless you seek help say from an occupational health provider as well as other people in the field but have the conversation with the employee if the employee is willing to talk and that can take some time to to build that relationship but it's one of those that when you build and you can have those conversations you know it it really I mean it, it kind of demystifies a lot of things and then employers and my clients and stuff tend to kind of go, oh, yeah, I've actually, this isn't the first time I've encountered that. Oh, that makes more sense. You know, when they reflect on other people, it, it's as, you know, it's as we said earlier, you know, it's not that people haven't been around disabilities, visible and invisible. Um, it's just that the level of awareness hasn't been there. And I always kind of describe things as awareness raising experiences. Um, you know, once you become aware of it, you know, you see more, you hear more, you're alert to more, and that can only keep on growing. You can't become less aware. So it's one of those, I always see it nearly as a talk more about it, share more about it. Um, not so much normalize it, because I hate that word. There's no such thing as normal, um, which I'm constantly talking to my sister about. Um, so it's one of those as well of just the more we communicate, the more people talk to each other and share then also, I mean, like going back to that deaf HR officer, you know, reflect, I mean, when, when she started, she was like, you know, how do I, you know, get it across to people that, you know, it's okay, that I'm okay with my deafness. Um, and she made a joke to me. She goes, if you don't want me to hear what you're saying, just turn away. And she started laughing. And I said, I'm going to get you to introduce yourself to the team. To the there was a there was a company of about 70, 80 people, and I'd said at the town hall, I'm going to get you to introduce yourself and for you to make that joke that you made to me. You know, because they're a really good bunch of people. The last thing they want to do is hurt your feelings, offend you, or actually not give you the credit you know, and take account of your ability, your capability. And I went, you'd you'd got to a senior position in a very difficult organization, um, which to me spoke volumes in terms of her level of resilience and ability to adapt. And so just by sharing that can kind of let people's shoulders, you know, come down a little bit, relax a bit more, and then they get to know you as the person rather than focusing on the disability. And they re they then begin to see that. And for some people, it's the scary, and then it goes into the familiar, and then the, oh, okay, that's fine. You know, they see the person. Yeah. I, I, I agree totally, 100%. You have to, to talk about it. And it is difficult. Um, from a personal point of view, I find it very difficult, even though I talk to family and friends about it. But actually bringing it into the work context, it's really difficult. But um, as I say, I was met with very supportive people and our HR person was like, we're here to help you, you know, and that you, you I don't think uh, I'm generalizing widely, but I don't think you get that everywhere. Um, but although it is difficult, it is so worthwhile talking about everything because you're right. Nobody can know about it unless you do, unless you share um, and then, uh, you know, and I hate the word normalize too, by the way, there is just nothing, there's no such thing as normal. Um, so, yeah, I think talk more, explain things, um, you know, people become more familiar, more aware. I, I think this is important because um, uh, I think there's an awareness and familiarity, but also there's an understanding point. 
And I know from, from my personal perspective with my friends that there's awareness of what I have said about I have this condition, it means that, X, Y, Z. But then really understanding it or being able to empathise with it is an entirely different thing. So I remember a friend of mine who, uh, when this kind of got really, when I my condition got really bad and suddenly I, I was leaving parties at, at midnight rather than three in the morning. And, you know, I wasn't quite the life and soul of the party I used to be and all of those other things. Um, and she was a bit mean and kind of saying, come on, why, you know, why aren't you here and just have a cup of coffee and, and all of these different things. And um, and it was only when she became ill with something else which affected her and then she was tired and, and all these other different things and her mobility was impacted temporarily that she suddenly went, oh, I kind of get it now. And then she stopped having a go at me at parties. And, and it was really good that she understood but the trouble was she hadn't gone from here's my explanation and here's you seeing me. You see I am different. I'm presenting as different. I'm now not, you know, going around the party and bouncing on the trampoline drunk, which I probably shouldn't have done. Um, you know, I'm now sitting on the sofa in the living room most of the far party. I'm still fun. I'm still having great conversations, but it's different. And I think that's something that's really hard. And it's also really hard, especially when you put it that in that employment context, as Susan said, because it's so personal. And I think in the US, if I understand it correctly, they they can't even ask, do you have a disability? Um, and certainly you don't have to disclose anything. And in a certain way, I can understand that uh, because it's non-discriminatory and so on. But also there's that flip side of, well, if I don't tell you what I need and why, how can you cater for it? Um, but also it's, it's really difficult, like with IBS. I mean, that's that's a very personal thing, <laughs> IBS, depending on how it affects you. And, and that can be really challenging to have that open conversation and say, you know, whatever your disability is, whatever your needs are, this is something very personal about me that I'm sharing with maybe my manager, maybe Oak Health, um, and maybe with my manager that I actually don't like or I don't get on with. I had to. I remember telling a, a manager that was bullying me um, years ago that I needed time off for because um, I had some uh, depression and I needed to get some CBT. And I had to tell that manager I needed time off from work for my CBT appointments, and he was bullying me. And that was a horrible situation to be in. Now, to be fair to him, he supported me. He got it cleared up. We, we, it was absolutely fine. On that point, he was really good. He still believed me on other stuff. But, you know, so it, it's a very hard context to be in from a work perspective, I think. I think it's just building up that trust. And I suppose as, as, as HR professionals, it's, it's building up that trust. And that's what I've always found is, you know, having that psychological safe place. Um, you know, to be able to have those conversations. And it takes a lot. You know, people are having to tell you things that they maybe haven't told their family. And it's, you know, it's it's having that ability to allow people to trust you and know that you're only going to do things that's in their best interest. Um, but it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of effort and it takes, you know, it takes, you know, it takes a lot for someone to put that trust in you. Um, and I think if you are somebody with any kind of 
disability, mental health issue, um, any kind of uh, non-normal in huge air quotes um, challenge. Um, I think that disclosing that can be helpful. I had a, a person attending my training recently uh, and I do ask, is there anything I, you need help with, which could be anything from I've got dogs in the background or kids at home through to whatever other needs it might be. And she said she had uh, dyslexia that um, caused a problem with brain fog and stuff like that and, and processing audio. And um, so I just kind of emailed her and went, OK, I understand. I've got this, which causes brain fog. And I sometimes forget my words and da 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 da, da. And she was just like, thank you for sharing. And whilst I don't have the same problem as her, I could un- I could empathise to it and I could make suggestions on how I could help her that were received and, yeah. and things went really well. So I think that part of that sharing and that openness and, and being vulnerable, which is something I've been learning over the last few years, has been really positive for me and other people in not dissimilar situations and other people to understand. So I, th- I agree with you, Helen, yeah. I think uh, one of the things I think... As disabled people, we have those of us who have good understanding and and understand the world that we live in and whatever, we have a duty in many ways to inform people around us about best practice behaviour. So many people just really don't know how to respond to somebody. They, They don't know how to... For a simple example, one of the things people often come up to me and say, can I help you? And most of the time, I don't actually need help. But I very rarely turn them away. I will find something that they can do to help me. Simply because that may be the first time that they've ever gone forward to somebody who they see as being different in some way and have plucked up courage to say, can you, can you help? Can I help you? If I turned around and said, no, I can do fine, thank you. I'm a very independent person. I don't need any help from anyone. That person will probably go away and never ask anybody again who looks like they're in difficulty. Um, you have to have, so you have to have that openness, but you also have to develop an enormously thick skin because, I mean, that some of the... Um, experiences if you are a visibly disabled person can be extremely painful um a common um, most people don't believe it but joe will probably attest to this because i think she's been with me when i um go to london i quite often take taxis uh to get from a to b which is fine most of the time but i would say half of taxis won't pick me up because they don't want to be they don't want to get out of their seat to actually get the ramp out and help me in. Now that is you can report the taxi drivers for doing that. Uh, you just have to get their their number on the back of their vehicle and report them to the London Taxi Drivers Association. Mm. But most of us wouldn't do that. But it's that feeling of rejection, um, and actually it can be quite physical. They'll slam the. I mean, I've even gone to lengths where I hide in a doorway while people like Joe go and, I mean, John did it. Do you remember when we were out with John that time? Uh, go and flag a taxi down. I come out and they say, no, mate, I'm off. And they just disappear. So, you know, you have to develop, you have to develop a really hard, tough car- carapace to deal with this sort of thing. 
one of the things that um that Andrew um mentioned in and said about you know what perspective as women do we have as, with living with disability I think one of the perspectives I bring to it is that um, I'm fortunate enough to be a, a disabled woman with two lovely children and two great grandchildren not great grandchildren but wonderful grandchildren not that old um, and they their attitudes are completely different and I think the more we can pass on our, our understanding to those around us that they will then pass it on. It's like a cascade process. Um, and hopefully as more people become comfortable admit, about admitting about disability, then that will, I hope, I'm always positive, like to be positive, that that will make a huge change to how, how being disability being disabled is perceived and also how you know also about the importance of women and passing on knowledge to children i think there's a quote somewhere um about um teaching and they say that if you uh, that mothers tend to imbue uh, attitudes more strongly than fathers simply because they probably spend more time with their children and that women tend to be greater influences on behavior through their children and future generations than maybe fathers are now probably rather controversial and I'm not saying it, it holds true nowadays it probably did but I think that you know we have to we have to model the best behaviors we can and pass those on so if that was for me that's that's the that was that would be would be the the key thing that I've learned as a woman with a disability I think it's also a little bit about advocating for others as well um which I think has been what Kathy has been talking about Susan as well um, you know, going back to what you were saying about some of your physical experiences, Debbie, I remember coming up and staying with you and we'd gone into a shop and you were in your wheelchair uh, and it's quite a big wheelchair. It's not a small wheelchair. And, oh, I'm a big and, lady. <laughs> well, you're not a big lady, but it's a big wheelchair. Um, it's not a small wheelchair. And, um, you know, and it's it's a very obvious physical disability. And I remember going up to the counter and the lady saying, something about you in the third person and I can't remember what it was but it was probably something like oh is your friend having a good day are you looking after your friend you know one of those kind of comments about the disabled person um and and at the time I was actually working for you on training journal um and so whatever the comment was and my response was well actually she's my editor and I remember Debbie when we got outside just saying thank you because it humanized Debbie and and also it was a little bit of yeah she's in a wheelchair yeah it's physically obvious but you know you actually don't know what's wrong with her she's not sitting there looking vacant and dribbling well I mean you know well, she I do today, but, <laughs> <laughs> but but some of those kind of things are really important and I think going back to the the um the non-visible part so I've got a non-visible kind of disability and, you know, it might be visible if you see me trying to get upset steps or if I've been sitting down too long and I'm hobbling along. 
but you know, yeah, that could be I've just hurt my knee doing something, or you know, I I'm an overweight person, so it would be easy to make an assumption of well, she's not very fit, and she if she lost some weight, she'd be fine. When that's whilst maybe a contributing factor, it's not the cause. And I know I've when I've been travelling in London and you know trying to drag a suitcase up the steps at a tube station, because I'm six foot one because I look okay, because I'm big and strong, and and I kind of am in a lot of ways, I don't get a lot of men saying, can I take your case? The five foot one skinny blonde, funnily enough, who looks like she's doing fine, men fall over themselves to help take their case. (laughs) My sister says the same thing. So my sister is taller, bigger. She has recently been diagnosed I think with fibromyalgia she's kind of in that sphere um but all the time you know it's a case of she doesn't get the offers for assistance when actually she could do with it more than me Mm -hmm. you know I would be more kind of bloody minded to say no I'm fine because I kind of go no go and help somebody else I can do this um unless I know it's just gonna wreck me um but my sister that's one of the things you know that she's always the overlooked the kind of well she's big enough she's strong enough sure she can lug it around she can do that she doesn't need any help and I think you know that that really impacts as well and I think things like um we probably here have heard of the sunflower scheme sunflower card scheme and if you haven't you know go and google it and you get like lanyards and car stickers and all sorts of stuff it's like green with a a picture of a sunflower and a bit like on the tube in London, you can get badges that say I'm pregnant or please give up a seat, you know, all. And there's a lot of things now on things like disabled toilets where there are stickers saying not all disabilities are visible and, and things like that. And so the sunflower scheme is really good because you can wear a lanyard or something and it doesn't have to be a, a typical disability, but it's something that highlights you've got a challenge. So I was on holiday in Corfu recently, queuing up at Corfu Airport and somebody there just recognized it and just ushered me through security really quickly and I was like that's awesome because actually I was thinking how am I gonna stand this long I mean I would have done it but it would have been painful and caused you know fatigue and all of these things to stand that long in a queue so some things like that making it more visible is is helpful um I think well well my body my body begs to differ and when perimenopause hit, when no, I was we're 39, not. We're forever young. My, we're all super I definitely noticed a change in my dyscalculia and my migraines and how I was able to deal with both of those. In a, in a good or a bad way? Bad. It's never good. Negatively affected. <laughs> never good. Never good. Um, so, yeah, so my fatigue got worse. My migraines got worse. Um, my brain fog got worse. And I had to then start you know my techniques had to change um I had to you know pace myself in a different way so everything had to change again for me and my techniques of how I, I I lived with my dyscalculia and my migraines and that knocked me a little as well um you know we're two and a half years in now and everything else and you know but again that's a big change to go through too when you you'd kind of got yourself in an even kilter for a little bit and you know you're thinking yeah it's all right we've got this now and then you got this massive curveball again and you know that that really did knock me and I've had to relearn techniques I've had to you know 
go back to the beginning in some ways as well and retrain my brain um, with my learning techniques, with my coping mechanisms um, and things like that. So that's definitely had a massive impact on me. Um, so I think that's something that needs to be taken into consideration as well as a woman, you know, from, from that point of view. Um, you know, so that's something that, you know, um, I've had to deal with, um, um, with when perimenopause came to. Yeah, absolutely. Because I, I find that um, um, I'm constantly throughout my life, I have to keep reassessing where I am and where I want to be and adjusting my lifestyle accordingly. Because although, I'm, you know, I used to walk, and then I stopped walking or I used more, more, you know, I had a rollator and all sorts of other devices. And then I kept falling over when my kids were small. And my husband said, you can't keep, you can't look after the kids if you're on the floor all the time. You're going to have to use a wheelchair more. So I started to use a wheelchair more. And it, it's constantly having to reevaluate where you are and what you want to do and changing everything around you. So you have to be open to change not only as external change but actually changing your inner attitude to your life around you and and accepting that there will come a time where maybe you you do things now but you might not even be able to you know that just like anybody else growing older you won't be able to do things later and you probably have to do that more than the average person so it's about being accepting change and accepting that you will have to maybe give up some things and actually being good with that and looking for things that okay you drop that but maybe you pick yeah. up yeah. something else definitely yeah. yeah is that constant reassessment and acceptance and just being fine with that um yeah yeah, yeah. definitely that's it and being happy with where yeah. you are mm-hmm. yeah that takes huge effort to be fine with that of course because you, you you're in a body that in some way you could see has failed you yes. and isn't working and that can impact your confidence and all of those things Absolutely. and then when there's something more and more you know I bought a walking stick the other day I, thought, I haven't used it yet but I was just like I, I think there's going to be a time when I need it and you know that's that's a step or, or not ironically um you know that that's a step you have to take sometimes and that's hard it is hard I I, I find like so I was just saying you you were finding that hard when I actually was sitting with the HR and and then later talking to occupational health, I sat and cried because it was that admittance of I I just can't do the things that I want to do. And you know the way you were saying constantly readjusting, I find it really hard because I don't know whether it's just my personality, whether it's women in general, we feel guilty about things, but you're really hard on yourself really hard on yourself I'm training myself out of that and it is a training process um but I when I went into this new job I kept being shown out I said my tech skills weren't brilliant they're okay but um there was a lot of new things I had to get my head around and people were showing me them but it wasn't like an elongated training process it was like you're shown and then you know you expected to remember I couldn't remember and every time I went back to do it it took me like six months to remember things. Now I can, but you know, and now I'm moving on. So there you go. There's the irony. And sorry for my dog barking earlier on. You were talking about dogs barking, Joe. Yeah, the hound just exploded into one of the barking fests there. So sorry about that. Um, but yeah, it is this constant readjustment and 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 sort of explaining that and kind of 
putting across that you're not being lazy. You actually have to sit down or you have to kind of take time out and have total silence so that your head's not going like that and being confused. That's what I find. I get a lot of forgetfulness and like, no, stop. Yeah. Overwhelmed. Overwhelmed. Yeah. Yeah. Overwhelmed. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. Yep. I mean, I've, I've got a couple of things, you know, that I, I feel that if you've, I'm, I'm, if you've always had a disability, for me, the first half of my life, um, I would say, or the last, yeah, 50 years, it's been a pretty positive experience because I've just achieved and achieved because I've, I've learned different techniques, I've moved on in my career, I've had my kids, all things that I thought I never would have when I was a child, a disabled child. Now I'm getting old and I'm having to rethink all of that. I'm finding it more depressing because I'm having to, I don't have the thought that I had before that I'm constantly on an upward trajectory. It's more now having to slow up and slow down. But then people who have suddenly developed disabilities or are aware of them, coming to terms, you've also got that coming to terms with a disability which is probably a whole different podcast, actually. But the, that coming to terms with the fact that the things you could do, you'll never do again or whatever, you know, like well, somebody who breaks their back or whatever. So, you know, there's there's so many issues in this. That it's just you could go on forever talking about it, but I know we can't. So what? But I've really enjoyed the conversation. So, the way. It's been great. so what's a really quick, positive we could leave people with? Leave a little sparkle wherever you go. <laughs> oh, I'm so into that, Helen. I am glitter-tastic, so I'm with you on that one. I love it, I love it, I love it. Yep. Could, could we get on the, on the soundtrack for this, just like a little? <laughs> just do it at the My end magic of that. Wand. Talk more about disabilities to anybody. And even if there is this, um, see, I can't remember the word. That's part of it. Um, Brain fog, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean, but I, I can't say it. Um, there, there is some kind of barrier to it sometimes. Uh, and I just think, you know what, I, if, if you have a barrier, I'm sorry, but I'm going to talk about it anyway. Yeah, I'd, I'd kind of say talk more, but listen more. So particularly if you don't have a disability, the listening is key. And it's listening with more than just your ears, it's your eyes, it's your body, it's understanding and truly listening to understand. Because that way, you also feel you can contribute more and support the person more and build that yeah, level of trust. Just be empathetic. And I, I think I'll wrap up on a more personal note, which is if you're going through anything related to this, it's, I think, self-compassion. Go and look up self-compassion because we need it in buckets for ourselves. And then when we're talking to each other, then when we're spreading our sparkle, we can do it even better. This was a heartfelt conversation with some key narratives that we hope will help break down barriers and challenge stereotypes and celebrate the strength, courage and unique abilities of every person. You wouldn't know, but three of our guests had never been on a podcast before. We think this is an amazing episode and so deserving of the little bit of sparkle at the end. Massive thank you to Joe, Debbie, Helen, Susan and Kathy for their time in recording this episode. We think it's fabulous. 
you will find all their contact details and fuller details in the show notes. Next time, it will be our last episode for 2023, and it's the procrastination one, which we think you'll really like, when you get around to listening to it, of course. (laughs) Please do make sure to like and subscribe, and please do tell your friends about the podcast. It really, really does make a difference. As always, thank you for listening, and we'll see you again soon.